We want to continue this morning in our study of the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a loving letter written to a church that was just a mess. Um, 1 Corinthians is a letter, the early parts of it, which have just been corrective at every turn. Um, So much so, there's a pastor of some renown in the Northwest. His name is Mark Driscoll. He taught through 1 Corinthians. The title of his series was Christians Gone Wild. They struggled, as we've seen in recent weeks, with incest and prostitution and abstinence in marriage. Uh, They were twisted up, it seems like, at every term, especially in matters sexual. So it's not surprising that in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul would need to raise the issue of divorce with this church as well. Um, Today's passage really is good for, not only for the church long ago, it's so good for us to hear these strong words of Paul on this matter because we live in the midst of a culture that has gone crazy concerns, as concerns divorce. Um, there's a German politician, her name is Gabrielle Pauli. She recommended in recognition of a thing called the seven-year itch, most marriages dissolve actually after seven or eight years, um, she recommended a seven-year expiration date on marriage licenses in Germany. Renewable, but that they last only seven years in recognition of that. Rod Stewart of rock and roll fame says, I think marriage vows should be changed because they've been in existence for 600 years when people used to live until they were only 35. So they only had to be with each other for like 12 years. Then they would die. But now, he says, it's a big commitment because you're going to be with someone for 50 years. He says, it's impossible. The vows should be written like a dog's license that has to be renewed every year. There's a recent billboard advertisement for a law firm that targeted young, wealthy, married couples on Chicago's Gold Coast neighborhood. The message on the billboard was simple. Life is short. Get a divorce. The world has gone crazy, it seems, with this matter. How do we live sane in the midst of it is what we want to talk about today. So if you'll open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll start in about the 8th verse, go from there, and I'd like to pray for us as you do that, okay? Father, you are about to press us in ways that are very contrary to the world in which we live. Give us ears to hear. Give us tender hearts. Give us strong wills to obey that we might truly love you in these areas. So we ask this favor now upon the teaching of the word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let's back up and review just the last two verses we talked about last week where Paul is talking to the unmarried and the widows. He begins a series of conversations, uh, instructions to different groups in the church maritally. We talked about the unmarried and the widows. <clears throat> it's entirely possible unmarried here is a reference to widowers. So he's talking especially to those who are widowed, and he says it's good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul, urging these widowed folk to stay single um, unless... They are struggling with sexual temptation, and then marriage would be considered God's good safeguard. 
for them in these matters. And Paul's applying a principle to them that he's going to apply to each of these groups. And the principle, based on God's sovereign assignment of our station in life, is simply that we should stay as we are. He says it over and over in the passage we're going to look at today. Verse 17, he says, Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in, in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches, Paul says. In verse 20, he says each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. And then again in verse 24, brothers, each man, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation God called him. So over and over again, Paul's driving this home and applying it to different sets of people. Stay in the place where God called you, where he has sovereignly placed you. He's going to use you there. That's the rule that he's applying. <clears throat> but there are exceptions peppered throughout this. It's not absolute in these matters. For instance, with the widows, he says, unless there's sexual temptation that's really pressing you, he said, then you should change. You should be married. Um, so that's, that's commonly the pattern that he's using here. The wisdom is you don't need to change places or partners to honor God and experience his favor. But where he has you, he wants to use you. Um, He addresses, in the passage we're going to spend more time in today, starting in verse 10, he addresses another group. He's writing to married folk now. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. So what Paul is saying is that he's he's basing this on the teachings of Jesus explicitly. Okay, This is not something unique to his teaching, but it's coming out of the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels. And the teaching is clear. A wife must not separate from her husband. This is the heart of the matter. This is the heart of God on the matter of divorce. Do not divorce. A believer must not initiate a divorce. This is a command that's given equally, as we'll see here in just a minute, to both husband and wife. Do not divorce. Now, the language of separation is used here. Largely, that's the same idea as, as divorce. Um, here at North Wake, we do, on rare occasions, with great caution, encourage a marital separation for different reasons than what Paul's addressing here. It can be a temporary shelter in an abusive or a dangerous situation. It is always an intentional step in an overall plan towards reconciliation. These are rare and done cautiously and reluctantly, but they are always used towards reconciliation, unlike this case, which is virtually the same thing as getting a divorce. Paul continues in the next verse, and he says, But if she does separate, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. So Paul now says, if a divorce occurs, maybe it occurred before he even wrote the letter, or maybe the believing partner he's speaking to was not the initiator of it, but whatever the case, he says, you've only got two options. Remain unmarried or reconcile. God is a God of reconciliation. Paul says, those are your options. And he makes it clear that this applies equally to a divorced husband as well as a separated wife. 
So let me make this perfectly clear, and let me address the husband since Paul closes it that way. Gentlemen, if you are contemplating divorcing a believing wife, God says you are never to have sex again with another woman as long as you live. Okay? I'm not making this up. It's right there in the Bible in black and white. Okay. You might want to rethink that idea you've been playing about, about getting a quickie divorce and starting over with that sweet young thing in the office. God forbids it. It is never to happen. There are other passages in the scriptures that raise um, potential rare exceptions to this teaching. Um, Paul is not addressing that in this case, and I'm not going to either. He wanted, and I want, the full force of this teaching to come on you without going off onto the but whatabouts. If you want to read about that, our church has an excellent, elders put together an excellent statement on marriage. It's available in the church office. You can email um, office at northwake.com and request a copy. We'll send it to you. But this is the heart of the matter. The heart of God on the matter of divorce. Don't divorce. Don't. Believe that. Live that. You know, Americans, they did a survey. Americans who believe divorce is a sin, 22%. Evangelical Protestants, folks like us who believe divorce is a sin, 34%. Paul is clear. This is a command of God. Um, Don't divorce. To divorce is to disobey him. Don't initiate a divorce. Paul's applying here that broader principle of staying as you are. God has sovereignly placed you in the marriage you are in. Trust him to work in and through you there. Paul's going to develop that in just a few minutes. But in in verse 12, he addresses another group. Talk to the marrieds, married believers. And now he says to the rest, I, not the Lord. That doesn't mean Paul's just making that up and it's not inspired scripture. It means there's not specific teaching from Jesus in the Gospels on this life situation. So Paul is bringing authoritative instruction from God directly, not through the teaching ministry of Jesus. It doesn't lessen its authority. He says, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Paul's addressing another group here, this time mixed marriages between a believer and an unbeliever. Um, And he's saying that there is a very clear principle here. Stay as you are. Believers must not initiate divorce, even if their spouse is not a believer. Same principle applied to this situation as well. Stay in the marriage. Um, Believers must not initiate a divorce, even in this situation. And he gives us a really good reason why in the next verse. He says, For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified 
through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, at some level, this is a little difficult to work out, but at another level, there's a really clear principle here. Paul is saying that in a mixed marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, there is a very real spiritual benefit that comes to the unbelieving spouse and to the children because the believing spouse is present and remains in the marriage. There's a very real spiritual blessing and benefit that comes to that spouse and to the children because that believing spouse remains present. Now, this is not saying that the unbelieving spouse or the children are automatically saved just because there's a believer in the house. That's not the way it works. That's, so, that's goofy on a number of levels. I don't have time to explore it at all. But proximity to a Christian does not save you, even in a marriage. Okay? So Paul is not saying that, nor is he giving you grounds to marry that really cute guy, even though he's an unbeliever. Okay? Because it'll bring a blessing to him if you marry him. Paul said it right here. No, no, you're turning Paul on his head and making say something that he's not even talking about. Okay. Uh, when Paul talks about spouse selection in a marriage, he, he loves to talk about it this way. He's going to advise widows later. He says, a woman who is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. And so we would broaden that to all believers, I think, fairly. Marry as you wish, but he must belong to the Lord. Okay, so Paul is not saying this is grounds for marrying an unbeliever. He is saying that your marriage matters more, more than just about you and your wants. Okay? It's bigger than that. Yeah, sure, you read Song of Songs, and it's a grand thing, this whole marriage business. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be joyous. But it's bigger than that. Um, there's a book, a wonderful book by Gary Thomas called Sacred Marriage. I would highly recommend it to you. Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. And he quotes a couple in that book who write about the Pascal mystery of marriage. This is what he means. He says, it's the process of dying and rising as a pattern of life after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection for married people. This is what he says. Each day we must die to our own desires and rise as a servant. Each day we are called to identify with the suffering Christ on the cross and then be empowered by the resurrected Christ. We die to our expectations, our demands, and our fears, and we rise to compromise, service, and courage. In this sense, a true Christian marriage proposal is an offer, not a request. It is about what we can give, not just what do I get. When we get married, typically we evaluate our spouse and we say, she's cute, she likes me, she loves the Lord, and she'll make a good mom. I'm in. But when you're married, your vows 
turn that on its head in a sense and you commit to love and cherish her for the rest of her life, to give to her to, for the rest of your days. See, your marriage, your presence in your marriage is intended to convey to your spouse the grace and mercy of God and to your children. That's why God has you in it. That's why you're there. How many of you, either your own marriage or someone you know, in that marriage, one of the spouses came to Christ through the testimony of the other spouse? You know somebody like that? Anybody? Know somebody where one spouse influenced the other to come to Christ? Okay. There's a handful here. and the, Most of them were in the first service. Very common. Very common. I asked couples... They came to Christ late in life. How'd you come to Christ? Well, my wife met a neighbor. They started going to church. She got saved. They started praying for me. I came to know the Lord. See, you are in your marriage to be a conduit of blessing to your spouse. In verse 15, things start to get... uh, difficult here. Okay, so bear with me as I try to sort it out for us. If the unbeliever leaves, Paul says, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? As I mentioned, this is really difficult to sort out at all the details, but there's a really clear principle in it that I'll talk about in just a second. But the idea that Paul seems to be saying here is that a contentious parting when a marriage ends, and again, he's talking about a mixed marriage where the unbeliever leaves. It's a very specific case. A contentious parting does not advance the gospel in your spouse's life. Preserve the relationship. Live at peace as best you can, even in this difficult, difficult time, you may yet see your spouse come to faith. Okay. That would be kind of the general understanding of this as I, as I read it. Now, there's a great discussion here about what exactly it means that a believing man or woman, the, the Christian spouse, is not bound in such circumstances when their spouse deserts them. Does that mean that they are then free to remarry? Some would look at this and say, no, no, that can't mean that because just a couple verses earlier, what did Paul say? Their only options are be reconciled and marry when he was talking about two believers. So he doesn't open up remarriage as an option in that case. Probably not doing it here. Plus, the context of the chapter is stay as you are. Wouldn't remarriage be changing that? So the context indicates in many people's mind that that's probably not what Paul was saying. There are other Christian scholars, though, who would say there's a broader context. And the precise language that Paul is using here mirrors the language of the ancient divorce certificates that explicitly included a right to remarry. So the language implies that Paul is talking about remarriage, and an ancient reader would have understood that, not reading back our modern befuddlement into it. So... Very difficult to discern here. Our elders are not in agreement on this matter. 
So I'm not going to be fool enough to press one of those upon you this morning. But I would encourage you, again, look at our marriage statement very carefully. There's a very wise path spelled out in there on, on these matters. But there is a clear principle that's conveyed in this, um, in this passage. Maintaining the peace of the relationship, even when an unbelieving spouse wants to leave, is the path we are called to walk. You know, you think of those really ugly divorces and really nasty child custody battles where there are no holds barred and relationships are absolutely destroyed with malice and intent. Now, we may end up in a situation like this where an unbelieving spouse were to to abandon us. We may have to go to court. And we may have to advocate for what's best for the children. But we ought always to seek to preserve peace even in that broken relationship. Because it may very well be used by God to bring them to faith, is what Paul is saying here. Now, um, Paul is about to move on to other happier subjects in the next few verses we'll look at, like circumcision and slavery. You have no idea how eager I am to get to 1 Corinthians 13 and talk about something a little more upbeat. Um, But before we go there, um, let me just talk. There's so many things that come out of this passage practically. One is um, God's heart on divorce is so crystal clear. We must protect our marriages from it. And there, there are a whole truckload of things that could be said about that. Let me say one real specific one that is an increasing concern in many eyes. Um, one in five divorces cite Facebook as a major factor. Okay. Two-thirds of divorce cases these days use Facebook as primary evidence of infidelity. There's a New Jersey church recently um, in six months, they had 20 couples at their church run into marital problems after a spouse reconnected with a former love interest on Facebook. Um, as a result of that, the pastor in that church required all 50 married church leaders to delete their Facebook accounts. Okay. Let me be real straight with this. Okay. Connecting with an old flame on Facebook or MySpace or email or snail mail is stupid and dangerous. Don't do it. Don't do it. Unless your spouse is sitting in your lap while you're doing it, don't do it. Don't do it. It is stupid and it is dangerous. Um, Our culture has gone crazy in matters of divorce. If you're going to live sane in the midst of it, you must protect this gift that God has given you, no matter how trying it is right now, no matter what difficult valley you're in. Do not contact former love interests, even out of innocent curiosity. It will take you places God does not want you to go. Now, the topic does change now. Mercifully, and Paul says, nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord has assigned him and to which God has called him. He's been working that out in marriage relationships. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? 
he should not become uncircumcised. Don't ask. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called, he should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was, in which God called him. Again, Paul's stating his principle. Stay as you are. The idea being that God has assigned you that place and wants to use you there. And here he applies it to circumcision. Circumcision, some have called, uh, it's like a boundary marker. It's a cultural uh, delimiter that indicates who's in and who's out for the Jews. You're in the kingdom if you're circumcised. You're a, you're a Gentile and outside the kingdom if you're not. Okay. That was the determining factor for men back in the day in terms of this matter. So when Paul says circumcision is nothing, this was a shock. Okay. Because it was everything. It's what made you, in many of their eyes, Jewish. Okay. It's what set you apart. It'd be like, think back to the 1960s, okay? Uh, all the volatility of the early 60s uh, racially in the Deep South. And someone were to stand up in a gathering like this and say, you know what, to be white is nothing. That's going to cause some problems. Paul is making that kind of shocking statement um, to his Jewish readers here. It means nothing. It's not the center. It's... It's the parameter. And um, John Ortberg talks about this in one of his books, and he says, The search for identity markers did not die out in the first century. The church I grew up in was a fine church, and I'm deeply in its debt, but we also had our own set of markers there. The senior pastor could have been consumed with pride or resentment, but as long as his preaching was orthodox and the church was growing, his job would probably not be in jeopardy. But... If some Sunday morning he had been smoking a cigarette while greeting people after the service, he would not have been around for the evening service. Okay. Why? No one at the church would have said that smoking a single camel was a worse sin than a life consumed by pride and resentment. But for us, cigarette smoking became an identity marker. It was one of the ways we were able to tell the sheep from the goats. Okay. Paul is saying... It's not about the boundary markers. Okay? It's not about giving up smoking, giving up drinking, giving up dancing, giving up mixed bathing, which was swimming. Okay? It's not about giving all that up. Okay? Now, I'm not endorsing all of those things, but he says that's not the heart of Christianity. If you're frustrated by your faith and you think it's a bunch of rules, Paul's telling you, no, it's not about the rules. It's not about the boundary markers, wise and helpful as they might be. He says, at the center, it's keeping God's commands. It's loving God through our obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. Paul says that's at the center. That's what it means to follow Christ. Not keeping a bunch of, of man-made boundary markers that we will and won't do. But at the heart, we will love God and demonstrate that love by our obedience to Him. 
Circumcision doesn't matter. Uncircumcision doesn't matter. Keeping God's commands as an expression of our love for him, that matters. Don't try to enhance your spiritual standing by adopting certain behaviors. Boundary markers. That's not what matters. That's not the big deal. Now, Paul has another example. This one's not about a boundary marker. It's about social standing. And he's talking to slaves. He says, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. It's a huge statement. Someone's a slave, and Paul says, don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is now the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation God called him to. Again, Paul says, if you're a slave, don't let that trouble you. How could he say that? Because even a slave can honor God from where he is living. It's not the big deal. Now, clearly, as with this rule applied elsewhere, this is not ironclad. Paul encourages slaves to be free. Obviously, he says, you're bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. The New Testament is decidedly anti-slavery and pro-freedom, but it's not the core. Because Paul says, you can still honor God even from there. So let's think about that and apply that broadly to our lives. John Piper has some excellent insight into this. He says, this text implies that the job you now have, as long as you are there, is God's assignment to you. Verse 17 says, let everyone lead the life which the Lord has assigned to him. God is sovereign. It is no accident that you are where you are. You are where you are by divine assignment, even if you got there by fraud. Your job is your ministerial assignment, just as much as mine is, he says. How you fulfill the demands of that job is just as essential in life as what you do here this Sunday. It's not about the if-onlys. Is there something that you're discontent about? Something you think, if only this were different? If only I had that, if only I didn't have this, then, then I could really serve God. Um, If only I were married, then, If only I were married to someone else, then. If only I were in full-time ministry, if only I had a degree, if only I had a different job, a bigger house, a better neighborhood, if only. Paul, in urging us to stay where we are, where God has assigned us, asserts that it's not changing our scenery or changing our social standing that matters most. It's not changing our marital status. What matters most is in love obeying God right where we are. 
This is your assignment. No matter how challenging, how disappointing, how frustrating, this is your assignment. Where you work and live and sleep now. So is there an if only in your life, a seat of discontentment that keeps you from thanking God and serving God wholeheartedly right where you are, in the marriage that you're in, in the job that you're in? Are you willing to be faithful right where you are and trust God to use you right where He has you? Let's pray together. Father, in in this teaching, you are pressing us where we are tender. Some of us where we are deeply wounded. Um, In marriages that are not as we wish they were, not as we dreamt, not as we longed. And yet you are calling us to love faithfully and bring the blessing of God into those unions, into those households. God, I pray for those who suffer and struggle that they would, by your grace, be faithful. And you would honor and delight in that. And pour the grace of God through them into their homes. For others of us, Lord, our discontentment lies elsewhere. We're convinced that if only things were different, then we could walk as you've asked us. God, help us to be faithful now and direct us wherever you would lead us lead us in that faithfulness. Father, I pray that you would protect these marriages represented in this room, that grace and love and mercy and forgiveness and joy would dominate. That past sins and wrongs would be washed and forgiven fully in the grace and mercy that comes from Christ. The good fruit of your spirit would grow in its place. Christ, we need this from you and we ask this for your name's sake.